This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. For the week of October 17, 2022, here are some top stories. For all the talk of how influential swing voters can be in an election, neither candidate for governor will be able to win without solid support from the base of their own parties. So how are Democrat Katie Hobbs and Republican Carrie Lake showing up support among the voters who should be easiest for them to win? Arizona Public Media's Andrew Oxford and KJZZ's Ben Giles report. Two weeks before the August primary, Governor Doug Ducey didn't mince words when asked by CNN what he thought of Lake. This is all an act. She's been putting on a show for some time now, and we'll see if the voters of Arizona buy it. Buoyed by support from former President Trump, a minority of Republicans did buy into Lake, at least enough to win the party's nomination in a bitter primary. Now the Republican Governors Association, which Ducey co-chairs, is pumping millions of dollars into the race to help elect Lake. And other party leaders, like Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, are stumping for the Republican nominee. Meanwhile, some key G. GOP donors who backed Lake's primary opponent are giving money to Lake's campaign war chest. Republican strategist Barrett Marson says many GOP voters who prioritize economic issues are consolidating support behind Lake, given the alternative, Democrat Katie Hobbs. The vast, vast majority of Republicans will end up supporting Carrie Lake because they will see the issues beyond some of the things that have turned them off of Carrie Lake. For example, election denialism. Still, Lake is much more closely aligned to Trump than the state's GOP establishment. And some Republicans who have pushed back against Trump and his wing of the party have ended up endorsing Hobbs. Heather Carter, a former state senator who was a Republican but became an independent earlier this year, is backing the Democratic nominee. I've become increasingly discouraged by the extremes on either side of the aisle. But as a former Republican, I became even more concerned with the fact that we have Republican candidates who are fundamentally peddling lies about the 2020 election. Carter says the question is whether enough Republicans and former Republicans will feel the same way. The people who are pushing the election lies about the 2020 election are fired up. While there remains a far-right base that's highly motivated for Lake, here with more on the Hobbs campaign is Ben Giles. Hobbs has, by some accounts, struggled to inspire the Democratic base. In national profiles of her campaign, Democrats have been wringing their hands over her refusal to debate Lake, who's called Hobbs a coward. Sandra Kennedy, a Democrat elected to the Arizona Corporation Commission, told NBC News she wondered if Hobbs is doing all she can on the campaign trail. On PBS, Hobbs defended her decision not to debate Lake. I am not going to be a part of her spectacle. While Hobbs may not draw the same crowds or campaign with the same bluster as Lake, Democratic consultant Stacey Pearson says there's substance behind her quieter messaging. There is a desire across party lines to make politics boring again and just get back to basics. And that is an appeal Katie Hobbs has in a way that Carrie Lake has demonstrably decided not to do. Hobbs' campaign events, from endorsement announcements to fundraisers, are highly scripted affairs. 
Questions from the media are typically limited, unlike Lake, who revels in antagonizing reporters. Pearson says Hobbs is sticking to the basics. The Democrats are doing their homework. They're knocking on doors. They are making telephone calls. They're sending direct mail. They're engaging directly with voters. And ultimately, that's the key to success. It's not how many people you get to come scream at a rally. Pearson says Hobbs is charting a similar path to victory as that of President Biden, who never matched the fervor Trump brought to campaign events in Arizona in 2020. From KJZZ News in Phoenix, I'm Ben Giles. And from Arizona Public Media in Tucson, I'm Andrew Oxford. In business news, after a tumultuous and longer-than-expected summer, the Phoenix Suns are back to start another season hosting the Mavericks, the very team that forced a bitter end to their playoff run in May. As Phil Latzman reports, Arizona's original pro sports franchise has a lot to deal with, both on and off the court, as they prepare to make another run at an elusive first NBA title. Following an NBA Finals appearance a year ago, the Suns appeared well on their way to another. They came into the playoffs this past spring as the team to beat, an odds-on favorite, after setting a new franchise record with 64 regular season wins, eight better than anyone else in the league. But their title hopes flamed out quickly in a seven-game series Western Conference semifinals loss to the Dallas Mavericks, concluding with an embarrassing blowout defeat at home. Head coach Bonnie Williams got more time than he wanted to think about it over the summer, He's still finding it hard to put behind him. Family time, a lot of reflection, but it was longer than I wanted, you know, and that that bothered me from a professional standpoint. You know, you you try to get away from it, but you're always thinking about why my summer was so long and why am I in this place and that place and why am I cutting down trees in Texas when I should be practicing. While trying to shake off a disappointingly short playoff run, the Suns have also had to deal with some off-the-court drama. Following a 10-month investigation and right before the start of training camp, the NBA announced it suspended team owner Robert Sarver for a year and fined him $10 million for racist and sexist comments in the workplace. Soon after, he announced he would sell his majority interest in the team. Suns point guard and team captain Chris Paul, the former president of the NBA Players Association, spoke out immediately, saying the findings were disturbing. It was tough, just like anybody, you know, reading all the different things as far as the N-word and... Um, it was more so also the things that people have to endure in the workplace. For Coach Williams, the owner's conduct was also personal. Uh, I have a, a white wife, uh, my stepson is white, and I have five black children. And just thinking about them living in a world where these kinds of things still happen, you know, that bothered me. So I'm no different than you all. I, I, there was a range of emotions and, and states of mind that I dealt with. Suns superstar guard Devin Booker was appalled as well, saying it wasn't the Robert Sarver he'd gotten to know. At the start of training camp, he felt the issue had threatened to linger like a dark cloud over the Suns' upcoming season. I think it was on its way to being a distraction, but now, you know, that he's, he's chose to sell the team, I think we can move forward and, you know, focus on the goal that, that that's at hand and that's playing basketball. The owner's conduct was especially difficult for James Jones, who was hired by Sarver as the team's first black general manager and is credited with building a championship-caliber roster. I think that's the best outcome for everyone involved. Uh, The players, the fans, the staffers, uh, everyone that was impacted on so many levels. Um, It it brings some closure uh, to a long period of discomfort and... Uneasiness. And there was another big issue hanging over the franchise this offseason, whether to keep former number one overall pick center DeAndre Ayton. 
Aiden, who is a restricted free agent, signed a four-year, $133 million offer sheet with the Indiana Pacers. The Suns had the right to match the offer and did so immediately. But the usually chipper Aiton, who attended the University of Arizona and has lived in the state since coming here from the Bahamas as a teenager, didn't seem too thrilled about staying for his big payday. I was happy. It was all done, I guess. That's it? Yep. During media day, Aiton even revealed that he hadn't spoken to or had any contact with his head coach since that painful Game 7 loss. Williams has been tight-lipped on the matter, telling media members he wouldn't discuss his relationship with Aiton, who indicated more recently the two had patched things up. And then there was even more off-season drama for the Suns when forward Jay Crowder announced he wouldn't be at training camp. The Suns released a statement saying they'd mutually agreed to part ways and would seek to trade him. But that hasn't happened yet, and with one year and $10 million left on his contract, Crowder, a key cog in the Suns' NBA Finals run two years ago, will start the season on the inactive list. Meanwhile, the Suns, through it all, remain one of the favorites in the West. And now 37-year-old Chris Paul says basketball remains the unbreakable bond. Luckily for us, basketball is our happy place. You know, that's the one place that we absolutely get a chance to be. And there's no phones, there's no TVs, there's no nothing, right? Like you ought to see when we have our pickup games. It's, it's like the freest moment, you know, because you get a chance to, to hoop. And they'll have a chance on opening night to see if they can put last season behind them against the very team, the Dallas Mavericks, that sent them to an early, long, hot summer. Phil Latzman, KJZZ News. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. Now in KJZZ Original Productions, let's take a look at vampires. The show's Lauren Gilger talked with one Phoenix-based artist who says anything can be a vampire. Sarah Hurwitz is one of the most creative artists in Phoenix, and for the entire month of October, she's taking her quirky style to the extreme and designing an image a day for a project she's calling Anything Can Be a Vampire. You can find all of the designs so far under her Instagram handle, Chockowitz, but she's got everything from vampire Bitcoin to a vampire cowboy belt buckle to vampire primordial ooze. I talked with her more about the inspiration behind this offbeat project. Well, I always want to do the draw-tober, the ink-tober mm. prompts, but it always kind of feels like work. Like there's a list of things and there's a due date and it feels kind of the same as when I get, you know, a freelance illustration project. Like someone's like, I need this by this date. Mm -hmm. And so then I just never end up doing it. So this year, I in September, I remembered. <laughs> and I was like, I'm just going to draw whatever I want and make it a theme by making them all vampires. <laughs> So this was you uh, taking on a, a sort of social media prompt that you've meant to do for a long time, it sounds like. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Why vampires? Um, my son actually checked out a book from the library, and it had a bunch of things that weren't vampires turned into vampires, like a booger oh. and a mushroom. <laughs> and I was like, this is great content. Like, I totally <laughs> can think of a thousand more things that could be vampires. <laughs> So let's talk about a few of them. And you have to describe this for us because this is radio. Mm -hmm. And there's a wide range already. We're, you know, maybe halfway into October here. And there's a lot of ideas. I like vampire juice cleanse a lot. And vampire stoner alien might be my favorite. <laughs> describe, first of all, the style. What do they look like? They're line drawings and colored in. Um, the juice, the vampire juice cleanse is kind of doing like a yoga pose. Mm -hmm, and he's mm -hmm. got tattoos on his arm. So I tried to make him seem like a vampire that would... You know, do a juice cleanse. <laughs> <laughs> 
Where did vampire, stoner, alien come from? I have to ask. Um, it's very specific. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I, that's just stoner alien is just like one of those symbols that people like have on shirts. That's true. Yeah. And I just thought he would be a great vampire too. I don't know. <laughs> what are a few of your favorites, or, or are there some you can give us a, a glimpse into what's coming? I really like uh, the single sock from the dryer because yes. I have two kids and there are so many single socks. So <laughs> and I just he looks the expression on his face is just real disgruntled and lonely, mm-hmm. and they just felt like the perfect thing to be a vampire. He spends all day being lost alone in the dark. <laughs> um, another one of my favorites that I haven't posted yet is uh, Vampire Circus Peanuts. Ooh, love it. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I think circus peanuts are disgusting. And I like the idea that they could just be filled with blood and they would still taste disgusting. <laughs> so, yeah. Maybe similarly disgusting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so your kids, it sounds like, help you come up with some of these ideas? Yeah, they definitely did. And they're really enjoying, like, I didn't tell them about all of them. So they're every day they're like, what one is it today? And they're like, that's really weird. But, yeah, they're helping. Yeah. Where do you come up with some of the other ideas? Is this stuff you've been waiting? Or you said these are images you wanted to draw already and have to sort of figure out a way to now make them into a vampire? Yeah, I when I first thought of the project, I just made a really long list. And there's some on the list that I definitely didn't draw or I attempted to. And I was like, this is not going to work out. <laughs> but that's how I approach a lot of my work. I really like list making. And mm. so it's sort of the way that I can like, I don't know suss out what my ideas are and I really like multiples so I think things have a real power when they're in a group as opposed to one of these drawings by itself is really like eh, whatever but a group of a bunch of really weird items turned to vampires becomes much more powerful. <laughs> I understand that that makes sense Yeah, Talk a little bit about your work in general. You've been on the show before um, talking about work that was very different and probably a lot more serious Yeah, <laughs> uh, but this isn't completely out of the realm of the kind of thing you do right? Yeah well like I said I really like list making so mm-hmm. I think that you know totally carries over in whatever I do um, even if it's like a, a single art piece there's always going to be some form of multiples and I also just really like irreverent stuff I think (laughs) in general even in my more serious work there's like a bit of levity and I these vampires definitely do that Mm -hmm. but there's less pressure I guess it doesn't really have to be anything so yeah yeah. is that nice as an artist to sort of maybe freeing in a way to sort of be like this can just be fun this does not need to be a comment on you know climate change or some social issue for sure and these are like um a long time ago in one of my first shows someone wrote an article about it and they said Sarah Hurwitz has managed to make a complete gallery of unsaleable art. (laughs) And I loved that because that's kind of like what I aspire to make, like really interesting art. But it's not like doesn't have a lot of commercial value. And I felt like it was sort of a slight. But to me, it was like the biggest compliment. Like the show was great, but it's not something you'd like really want to put on your walls. Exactly. So I think (laughs) the vampire stickers are like sort of like that a departure like from things that need to be pleasing and that you want to own and that you want to look at all the time. Yeah, I mean, and you're selling these as limited edition stickers. Yeah, which isn't profitable at all. Nope. It's just more because I like to, you know, send out snail mail and it's like a, I like a tangible object and yeah. it's on Instagram. It's You're just getting a picture, so yeah. yeah. I love it. So that's a really interesting angle to come at it for an artist. Like you are actually trying to not do the, the kind of paintings that you see in Ikea or, you know, in the art section of Target, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I 
it, to me, it's important to have that balance. Like I do, of course, make stuff. I, that's what I do for a living. So I have to make stuff that people enjoy and that mm-hmm. they can buy and that they can reproduce. But it's nice to like have that palate cleanser of like, I'm going to make whatever is on my brain and it's going to be weird and maybe people will like it and maybe they won't. But mm-hmm. at least I get to do it. So tell us a little bit about what's next in your career. I mean, you've been an artist in the Valley for a long time and have done a wide range of work. And I still do a lot of freelance work. That's kind of where I make most of my bread and butter. So I don't feel like I get to show people that stuff as much because it sort of belongs to whoever buys it. It's not really mine. It's like they ask for something and then I give it to them and it's theirs sort of to do with what they need to do with it. Mm -hmm. But I am doing a public art project in Tempe at uh, Scudder Park. It's going to be a bunch of cast resin pieces Mm. uh, and I'll have illustrations inside of them. Again, 127 cast resin pieces, so multiples, again. And there will be sort of like a seek and find. So you'll be able to find a drawing of every tree in the park, Hmm. a bunch of birds I've listened to in the park, um, and some A to Z objects because it's right by an elementary school. So I wanted to make it (laughs) sort of fun for the kids. That's really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like this project might actually be some kind of commentary on being a working artist, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's true. It totally could be, yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, is it a good commentary? Is this a good path to take? Yeah, I really enjoy it. My husband asks all the time, like, if our kids wanted to be artists, would you let them? And Mm. I'm like, well, I'm not going to. Of course, I'd let them. But it's a weird path. So, I mean, it takes a lot of (laughs) stick-to-itiveness. Which you've proven you have over the years. (laughs) All right. That is local artist Sarah Hurwitz joining us to talk about her October series of Anything Can Be a Vampire Stickers. Sarah, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. In education news. It's been two weeks since University of Arizona professor Tom Meixner was shot on campus. Authorities say the former student accused has been indicted on seven felony charges, including first-degree murder. Greg Connie reports. Pima County prosecutors said a grand jury also charged 46-year-old Murad Dervish with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, burglary, and possession of a deadly weapon by a prohibited possessor. Dervish is scheduled to be arraigned on Monday and remains held without bond pending a scheduled hearing this week. It is not yet clear if he has been assigned a public defender. Earlier this year, Dervish had been prohibited from campus, and the university twice sent misdemeanor complaints to the Pima County Attorney's Office regarding harassment directed toward faculty. But the office did did not charge him, citing there is not sufficient evidence. Greg Hawney, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Fronteras News, lawmakers in southern Arizona are renewing calls to the federal government to help clean up contaminated water in Tucson. From our Fronteras desk, Elisa Resnick reports it's part of a long process in the region to address groundwater contamination. The contamination is from PFAS, a group of chemicals linked to cancer and other health conditions. Tucson's contamination has been traced back to activities at the Davis-Monthan Air Base and Morris Air National Guard Base. In a letter sent to Air Force leadership, congressional members including Raul Grijalva, Ann Kirkpatrick, and Mark Kelly say PFAS levels in certain areas of Tucson are above the threshold deemed safe by federal environmental monitors. The city has already spent millions cleaning the water on its own. The lawmakers say, especially as drought and climate change create more water supply issues, the federal government should step in to help. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And finally, in science news. KJZZ reported growing concerns about insulin shortages for the world's growing population of diabetics, which are disproportionately represented among Native Americans and Hispanics. Now, new research shows concerning rates of insulin rationing. 
From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports. Data from the 2021 National Health Interview Survey suggests up to 1.3 million people ration their insulin, typically by delaying purchasing or reducing dosage. Self-limiting was highest among older adults and people who are uninsured, although the rate among young people was twice that of seniors over 65. Many reported feeling overwhelmed by the demands of living with diabetes, one of which is likely rising insulin cost. The Inflation Reduction Act, which caps co-pays at $35 a month, only applies to people on Medicare. That group had the study's lowest rates of insulin rationing. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.